Welcome to Tap In, Waterloo Region's newest community podcast brought to you by Social Venture Partners. I am your host, Rose Greensides, and over the next three months, we will take you on a journey where we will tap into real social issues facing real people in our region. Joining me will be other community leaders, where together we promise to inspire you to be part of the solution. Thank you for tuning in today for our very first session. Today, we're tapping into the topic of early literacy, the importance of it, what happens when we aren't able to provide children the tools needed to learn how to read, and the ripple effect and impact when this happens. So I'm lucky enough to have Alex Kinsilla, SVP partner, who'll be co-hosting with me. Welcome, Alex. Thank you for having me. I think between the two of us, we have like a half a dozen children. So this topic is fairly relatable. What's what's the Steve Martin movie? Cheaper by the dozen kind of thing, right? Where, yeah, we definitely have the the age range of, of literacy and different stages of literacy. Exactly. And our guests today are leading an organization whose vision is that all children can read. So we have Michelle Dennison, Executive Director of Strong Start, and Lisa Williams, Director of Programs for Strong Start. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. So maybe we'll just start, Michelle, with getting you to give us sort of a lay of the land before we dig in deeper. And I'm thinking about the word early, actually, and that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So can you give us an idea of what early relates to? I'm assuming there's some critical ages that we need to be aware of when it comes to early literacy. Certainly. Well, early means at birth. And Some may argue that it's even pre-birth, but if we think about at birth as early, our babies' brains are developing at a rapid rate. In fact, they make a million neural connections a second. And so every interaction that we have with our babies face-to-face, using language, reading with them, singing with them, talking with them, is laying those neural pathways towards literacy and language later on. And the more parent or caregiver talks with their baby, sings with their baby, and has those face-to-face interactions, the stronger those neural connections become, and the easier it will be for that toddler, preschooler, and school-age child to draw on those pathways as their brain continues to develop. What happens when that doesn't happen? So I'm imagining Alex singing to his baby and, you know, reading to his baby and things going well, you know, in primary and secondary school. But what happens when we're not able to do that? I'm assuming there are some health implications, social implications when we're not getting to children at that early age. Can you talk a little bit about some of those statistics? Certainly. What happens when when they don't have those rich interactions is that without that stimulation, the child is not developing vocabulary. They're not hearing rich language. And so when they get to school, they are not as ready for that experience as other children who have had those rich language and literacy and pre-reading experiences. So for example, children who are coming from low-income backgrounds, research shows that they will have heard 30 million fewer words than children who come from higher socioeconomic settings, where perhaps they've been in childcare and early learning environments where parents parents or caregivers read to them, model reading, have rich dialogue with them. They don't have the vocabulary. Actually, a child's vocabulary at age five is a predictor of their vocabulary in grade 11. 
90% of our brain is developed by the time we're five years old. From birth to five is the most rapid time in brain development in our lives. And so without that stimulation and without those, as I say, rich exchanges, access to language, hearing, you know, words in context, rich descriptions and that kind of thing, you know, the child will be behind their peers when they start school. You know, that kind of makes me think of a concern I think a lot of us have had over the last two years, which is the increase in screen time a lot of us have (laughs) relied upon to get things done. And, you know, in those formative years between, you know, zero and five, is there a detriment or are are there benefits potentially to, to using screens and whether that's, you know, watching hopefully educational programming and not just YouTube videos of people opening toys. What what are the negatives and positives of that? Well, the Canadian Pediatric Society recommends no screens prior to age two. And I know that we know too that, you know, this has been a very challenging time for families, but that is the recommendation. And when a baby's brain is developing or a toddler's brain is developing, seeing faces in person, that rich three-dimensional view that they have, seeing a human face versus a face on the screen, it is different. Megan Cox is the person there. It's been research done that shows they've actually monitored children's brain activity when they see someone reading on a screen or hearing someone reading in person. And they can actually measure how the brain is firing in those two different scenarios. And in a screen in a two-dimensional world, it's it's hardly firing in an in-person setting with a human being reading to them and talking with them in person, their brain lights up. So yes, they're entertained. They will be able to perhaps repeat what they hear, but in terms of that rich, deeper learning and their brain development, it is not the same. I'm wondering if you could speak to, and maybe Lisa or Michelle, one of you on graduation rates. So you talked about grade 11 kind of being an indicator when you're five and that grade 11 mark, and that's so close to graduation rates. And we know that Waterloo Region is lower when it comes to provincial graduation rates. I think we're like 83 or 84% which seems astonishing to me, considering we have three post-secondary institutions. But how does not learning how to read at an early age affect graduation rates? Is there a correlation there? There's definitely a correlation there. You know, in those early years, those primary grades of school, children are up to grade three, they're learning to read. By the time they get to grade three, they're reading to learn. And if a child doesn't master that life skill of reading, which must be taught and must be learned, you can't pick it up. You might learn to speak English, but to be able to read and understand and comprehend, you really do need to be taught and it needs to be learned. And so, you know, as soon as a child struggles with reading and their learning begins to suffer, then other issues emerge like low self-esteem or low confidence. If they can't do what the other kids are doing, or they can't access the information that they're supposed to be understanding and remembering and being able to use and apply, then every area of study is going to suffer. And when a child or a youth become where their confidence suffers, you know, then other things start to creep in like behavior issues, perhaps mental illness, or that come from low self-esteem and other things. But we really do become vulnerable to not completing high school if they can't pass their courses, get their grades, do what the other, what their peers can do. And I think that's where it all 
when they when they lose that and they don't believe that they can do it, I think they really do become susceptible to not finishing. And I would add to that that the level of proficiency that's required for graduation really does start in that early literacy in those early years in developing those literacy foundational skills and building on those over time. And when that time is delayed or that gap is created and more time is spent on building on skills that maybe should have been already mastered, it places a real stress on the child in terms of their social emotional well-being, their health, their interactions with their peers, their sense of belonging, right? Their sense of knowing that they have a place and that they are connected to the people around them. So oftentimes what happens by the time there is a situation where a child is in high school and that proficiency is required, there's been such time already passed where that gap has grown. It becomes more and more challenging for that child to be able to access the supports that they need and really be able to get that support that they require to be proficient to to graduate. So, so with, you know, kind of going back to that, not, not to harp on screen time, but with that, but one of the, the concerns that I've had friends who have younger children now say with that is they're worried about things like dyslexia or, or other issues come around that affect literacy. Does using screens kind of sometimes hide those things? How early can like things like dyslexia be discovered? Dyslexia can be, in signs of dyslexia, can be very evident early on. And I think with caregiver and a support team in a school system, for example, those conversations can start quite early in terms of some of those milestones that are just not necessarily being demonstrated by a child. And it could start with their oral language and being able to understand language in terms of either receptive or expressive language. And then it moves over into print. So, you know, identifying the letters and sounds and words And is that something that's coming to them with the supports in place, or is that something that's going to require some more extensive intervention and and support in order for them to be successful? And there are several ways to do that and several ways to support a child that has dyslexia in a school. I'm thinking about new Canadians and personal story. My parents immigrated to Canada 47 years ago this month, actually. And so my siblings were about five and six and English was not their mother tongue. And so when they started school, appreciate this was 47 years ago, there was definitely a barrier there. You know, they weren't able to speak the same language. There was a disconnect. And at least for one of my siblings, that certainly created a disconnect all the way through primary school and they were held back one year. So I know I know it's 50 years later and things have changed, but can you tell us how we support children who who come to our community where English may not be their first language and how do we get them to be on that same sort of starting field as other children who who English is their first language? I'd like to really emphasize that key point of relationships that I think we've mentioned around having that connectiveness with a person and really building on that confidence for the child. And whether that be in their language that's spoken at home, and then we build on that when it comes to learning English language. So really building that confidence in that child so that we know that they're a learner as a whole, you know, talking about topics that are of interest to them, that they can share and show excitement for, and then building that into the language experience, into the learning of the language experience and making sure that that is there because it's really crucial that there's trust and safety in that learning experience. Are there other ways that, you know, we, we talk about early literacy. If you're a parent who has 
Like, how do you support parents who have moved here, who English is not their first language? How do you support them with literacy at home with their children? I could maybe speak to that and draw an example, a couple of examples that services that Strong Start provides. So our Get Ready for School program targets primarily children from low-income backgrounds and children who are learning English as a second language. I can say in our Get Ready for School program in Waterloo Region, each year there's nearly 50 languages spoken among the children who attend that program. So, you know, they come in there, many of them don't speak English, their parents don't speak English. The first thing is we can encourage parents to talk to their child in their mother tongue, build that vocabulary. That vocabulary in either language is really key for them to be able to express themselves and access information later on. So in this program, the children learn the sounds each letter makes, they learn vocabulary, as well as classroom readiness behavior. So things to expect in a classroom, taking turns, putting up your hands, forming a line, sitting in a circle and singing, those kinds of things. So really to try and prepare them for entry into school. But we also have at four intervals in the program, we also speak to the parents about what is happening in the classroom and how they can support the learning at home. If need be, we'll have translators there. And we also have our parent newsletters translated into five prominent languages that occur in that program. We've also developed parent resources on our website. So these are resources for parents, things like learning styles, starting with a book, repetition. But then there's 28 games and activities that children, that they can do with their children with in home or out in nature with things commonly found around the house, as well as each one of those activities has a link to Google Translate. So it can be easily translated into multiple languages to make those resources accessible, regardless of of the language spoken at home. Do you have any tips? And and selfishly, I'll ask this question. I don't remember when I started to enjoy reading. And it's an interest, like my, my parents read me books and I have memories of my parents reading me books, but I don't remember when I became the person, like I read now and not like 20 books a week or anything, but like, you know, I get a book from the library and I finish it in the three weeks before I have to bring it back. So, you know, that's, that's a win for me. But I don't remember how I got to that point. And I've heard, talked to other parents and the same thing is like, I mean, screens aside, it's how do you, what are the kind of things that, to get kids interested, how to, to build that kind of love of casual reading in so that it, when they get you know further into school, it's just an easy thing for them to kind of just jump into. I think that's an interesting comment, Alex. And I think that many of us can relate to that. And I think part of that is because it's such a process that happens over time that it's a process that there's things that happen that we don't remember, right? Experiences that we have that we may not remember, but that were certainly very important to our development in terms of our our reading skills and comprehension, right? Uh, What children know about reading and writing happens well before they actually learn to read and write. And that's through the modeling, the experience, the exposure that they have to language in in a variety of ways. And it's slow, right? And it's fascinating to see those times, though, when, you know, you're sitting with your child, as I can remember, or sitting with a, a child who's learning to read, and suddenly that first word that they identify is shared, or they put a full sentence together or a full book together, even if it's by memorizing, and they suddenly become a reader, and they, they identify themselves as a reader. 
And then from there, it's really the doors start to uh, to open in terms of what you can do with that reading and where you can go with that. So I think we often don't remember that, Alex, because it's like, I'm not sure when that happened. Unfortunately, we do remember if it doesn't happen. So I read this statistic, and maybe you guys can tell me if it's if it's true, but statistic is quite startling that more than 1 million children in Canada are estimated to have below grade level reading skills. So if that's correct, how has COVID aggravated these stats and maybe not now, but, you know, moving into the future? So kids haven't been in school consistently over the two years. You know, what are what are sort of some of the future trends you're seeing in, in some of these early literacy concerns? It's a really good question, Rose, and that's already emerging. Experts are are recognizing this, that children who struggled before the pandemic this has really exacerbated their challenges. And there are children who were not struggling before the pandemic who are now struggling learning to read. Early research has showed that some children will be eight to 12 months behind in their development without intensive interventions at that early age and stage. And we think about back to the beginning of the conversation, we talk about, you know, 90% of your brain developing by the time you're Five, and that children have had long breaks from classroom learning and varied experiences at home too. I mean, parents, families did their very best, but this was very challenging times. It could have been access to technology. It could have been, you know, parents working from home and not having to be able to give their full attention. You know, there's many reasons, but, you know, this is being recognized by the experts as something that we all need to pay attention to these children at these very early stages in their development. Alex, any final questions as we start to wrap up? Going back to what you'd earlier said around how children's brains react differently to being read to in person versus hearing people speak on the screen. There's, there's a lot of talk pre-pandemic and then obviously during the pandemic because we're around virtual learning, online learning, and there's a lot of push, especially in later years of, of high school to make more classes available online. I'm I'm the kind of person I don't learn well online. And I've, I've tried to take some online courses and it just, it doesn't, nothing happens. I drift off, do other things because I just can't, I can't focus on those. For those early years though, do you think that that's definitely a thing that people should avoid in terms of like online learning for younger children? That's a really hard question to answer. If it wasn't for online learning, what would, I mean, there would have been no learning. You know, technology is here. You know, we have to live with it. We live with it. Children enjoy it. I think moderation is the key. But to your point, there's a a professor. She's quite a well-renowned professor. Her name is Dr. Marianne Wolf. And she, you'll have greater recall. You're using a part of your brain when you read in print. She talks about the filing cabinet. When you read in print, you're exercising your brain. And you will have greater recall for other things. So, you know, when we have technology like our phone, we don't have to remember phone numbers. We don't have to remember people's addresses. We're not going to the filing cabinet. We're not opening it and retrieving that. So we're not going to remember that. And so reading in print actually keeps your brain more nimble, which impacts other areas of your life. She said another really interesting thing too in her talk. She talked about The area of your brain that is activated when you read in print is the same area of your brain where empathy is developed. So if you're not using that muscle, if you're not using that area of your brain, your ability to empathize may become compromised. 
She also said an important part of reading in our development as humans is that when we read about other characters and we share their experiences, they're not necessarily our experiences, but we live them with the characters in the book. We feel those emotions. We empathize with the characters in the book, and we're actually developing that skill when we're accessing stories and characters and reading in print. So I just found her work fascinating. I, I highly recommend that book. This is something that's of interest to you or to your listeners. It's called Reader Come Home. And if you ever get a chance to see her speak, she is just so dynamic and engaging. You, you don't won't want her to stop. It's, it's a fascinating topic. And the world needs a little more empathy these days. So uh, good way to perhaps wrap up. So thanks for listening to Tap In. Special thank you to Alex for co-hosting and Michelle and Lisa from Strong Start. Thank you for sharing your knowledge. Uh, Before we go, reminder that SVP's first in-person tour will be at Strong Start in a couple of weeks, where we'll be able to learn more from Michelle and her team on how Strong Start is striving to ensure that every child can read. Until next time, this is Rose Greensides, host of Tap In, brought to you by Social Venture Partners. Have a great day. 